Welcome to Afterthought, a podcast series that puts our present moment into perspective and invites you to think through our world in crisis together. I'm Dawson. I'm Karambir. And I'm Chris. You're listening to Afterthought Podcast. In this episode, we draw from examples of civilizational collapse and from our current ecological crisis to discuss the limitations of our evolutionary survival instincts. And we take a view of the challenge facing us when we try to outgrow our existing adaptations in favor of a greater adaptability. Welcome to Afterthought. In our recent episodes, we've moved from a discussion of the actual age as the historical precedent for our present times into a deep dive into some of the dynamics and psychology around the ego and how the human ego is on the one hand a great evolutionary achievement of the human species in that the individual forms a sort of psychological understanding of itself that is not exactly the same as its body and the environment, but is in fact intimately tied into identification beyond its individual self with the community that has raised it, with its tribe. This identification means that you could read all of human evolution and history as the effort of a sort of identity project of this small, fragile, weak, uh, under threat human individual ego to identify with structures beyond itself. While evolutionarily this was the case in terms of the small tribe, as human, the human race grew and evolved and, and moved into civilization and moved into big cities and moved into empires and moved into world religions and world civilizations right up until the present of globalization, what the human ego has done is consistently scale up and identify with larger and larger power structures, ultimately for the basic evolutionary aim of survival, but with a lot of psychological complexity added into that whole mix to the point that we are now in a world that is in crisis because this scaled up ego is refusing to admit um, its own limits and refusing to set limits to itself for the sake of others, whether the others are defined as other tribes or other people, other species, or even the planet itself. No, I'd, I'd like to scale this down a little bit, and let's talk about what what the ego's functions are. Because we we've been talking, we've used the word ego quite a bit, and it's common in psychology, and not not so common in other literature, though though it is there. Um, now, the ego's job, from an evolutionary perspective, is survival, and it it accomplishes that. So, based on well, what let's we've add calling, let's add psychic survival, right. So the ego's job is psychic survival. So, and and how it does that is it tells you what's real. That's a big part of it. Um, the ego identifies out with the tribe, and this is sort of where we find mythology coming into play, because this is how this is how the tribe sort of uh, sort of reproduces itself in the ego. Is that? The ego learns what is real from the tribe, and this is sort of a stabilization of consciousness. We've talked about mythology's ability to stabilize things. 
But the ego learns what is real, and it's well, it has these desires, right? It wants to it wants to survive. So, but it realizes quite soon that those resources are limited, and so it feels insecure. And how it manages that insecurity? Well, well, it is helpless. It, it, so it has to identify with as large a power structure as it can manage. So it identifies up, and and we see that today going on scales that are much larger than than anything. Uh, uh, that tribal egos could have imagined. Yes, and I think you can rightly name them as pathological. They become so big, they kind of exceed logical limits of what they should be in. And and, and yeah, a lot of what's going on in recent history, much of the 20th century is, you know, a history of pathological individuals who have too much power for themselves. Right, a Hitler or a Stalin is sort of easy ones to pick, but you know there are some closer to home. We can right, name so too. we can we can move beyond so the recognition of the ego as wow, this amazingly adaptive thing that has come from evolution, and we can realize that well, okay, yeah, it's good most of the time, but what are its limits, and what about it might be leading to problems for humanity? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that is a. Uh, utterly appropriate trajectory to, to pursue here. And notice a lot of what you named that the ego does. It gives a sense of reality. It gives a sense of what's safe and unsafe, what's dangerous, what's not, like boundaries to itself, um, whom, whom it can ally with or who's an enemy, who's it suspicious of or not. Um, a continuity of identity over time, which is very healthy. Um, ego tends to be quite it's a stabilizing. Like a good, healthy ego is a stable one, not an unstable one. Um, so all of those that you're naming are good, um, and I think they are good, and, and in that sense, it, it is a great achievement. But we might also be able to then flip, and we should, we should flip that around, and can we think of cases where the ego makes identifications that are not so good? As in, to say, I belong to this tribe, it loves me, I am a productive member of it, I give to it, it gives to me, it's, I can find a fulfilling life with it. All of that sounds very healthy. But can you also think of examples where the, the identification with the tribe, and here's where I go from what I call tribal identities to tribalism, where just like it's natural to expand into your territory, but to add a human cognitive power that sort of doesn't recognize limits and pushes us beyond natural limits, it becomes expansionism. Well, it's natural to identify with your tribe, which we call tribal, like we were born and raised in a small nuclear family or an extended family or a particular tribe. But then it starts to expand beyond that and it becomes tribalism. And I'm not sure if any of you if either of you can think of examples that are not so positive, where suddenly, well, wait a sec, this mythology of my tribe, which gives articulate form to my survival needs, to my reality, to, to what I believe in, what I care about, what I love, right? much of which is good. Well, it also gives articulate form to that person over there is from the other tribe and he is the enemy, and he is to be killed if you meet him or captured or tortured or that particular being there is you know to be shunned or that particular animal is to be avoided at all costs even that particular animal is never to be eaten even though 
And in fact, this ramps up into many examples you can find in, in some of the ecological literature around societies that collapse, right? Perhaps most famously, uh, Jared Diamond has a book called Collapse, where he ex looks at a, a huge number of examples of societies that, that, that collapse and, and a few that don't. And from a psychological point of view, what is extraordinary about that is the ego of the individuals within the, those particular societies will identify with that society's form of life and values, what you eat and don't eat, who you associate with and who you don't associate with, to such an extent that, in fact, if their society is going to collapse because of its way of life, they're faced with a very stark choice. Change your way of life, and therefore your identity and your mythology and, and, and your consumption practices, right? Or die, or collapse. And again and again, the majority of cases Diamond show, finds and shows, people choose to keep that way of life and collapse. I mean, the one that always struck me from the book is how the Vikings of the Norse who lived in Greenland basically starved to death in the presence of abundant unused food resources like ringed seal and, and whale because that's not what Vikings ate. In Iceland, they didn't collapse, but they were able to maintain links to the continent and enough trade, whereas Greenland was further away and it was, it, was, it was more risky, it was more acute. But what's really striking about that, and it seems to me like a really powerful negative identity example, is they identify with the culture and the way of life and what you do and what you don't do, right? all of these ego structures, so strongly that even though the society itself is in peril of collapsing, and it, it was obvious to everyone there that it's going to, they refuse to change. And we can't just call them stubborn. I mean, we could. But, but the psychology here is enormously basic and evolved and complex and, and strong. And it seems to be quite clear that's what we need to outgrow today. Because there's far too many egos out there holding on to particular identities rooted in particular ways of life, rooted in particular consumption patterns. And there's no doubt the one we have named over and over again is the modern highly industrial, highly technological, economic version. Um, that's the one that needs to be done away with if the planet's going to continue. And yet we have these evolved yet infantile basic ego structures that are refusing to let go of that. So it seems we actually we have to move beyond the, these deeply rooted evolutionary instincts like tribalism, expansionism, and into something more. So it, another way of putting this is that the ego has to die so that the human race maybe won't. Yes. I think we are faced with a pretty straightforward, uh, with a lot of complexity behind it, but a straightforward choice of either we choose like a sixth extinction, which we're currently in right now, and we, we can continue it, and, and we can choose climate change and in increased volatility, which means increased areas of the earth that are uninhabitable, which means increased suffering for billions, right? We can choose that extinction, or we could choose, and, and this is what the Actual Age Visionaries counsel, um, we could choose to extinguish the human ego instead, which is a very different project. Right? Instead of turning outward, which expansionism does, right, where you expand into your territory, or consuming, which is you know, which is a natural thing to do, 
But the levels of affluent consumption we're currently engaged in is not natural at all. That's like unnaturally accelerated or increased and expanded. And it's to serve an ego that does not know how to limit its own desires. And it's become unrealistic. It isn't unrealistic in, its own, in a narcissistic way for itself. But it's unrealistic if you care about others. And it's unrealistic if you care about the planet. So there is an enormous spiritual and psychological challenge facing us today, um, which we didn't really have to face all that often in the first 150,000 years of our evolution, or even 180 or 190,000. But once you get sedentary civilizations that grow and expand and begin to use up those resources and cease to be mobile, well, then you get the particular civilizational challenge of what do you do when you reach the limit of your resources? Right? And, and again and again, empires collapse. Again and again, civilizations collapse. And again and again, if you look carefully at what are the common causes, well, their, their consumptive lifestyle pattern exceeded the resources available. So they either had to figure out how to expand further, and often they did, by conquering more or trying to expand for, or, or, or develop more intensive technologies, which is often what they do. Or they had to do a very different thing, which is to turn inward and say, we need to deny ourselves and live very differently in order to make room. Now, not for our ego and its desires, but for others and, and their needs and, and, or the limits of nature. But I would argue, in fact, both are part of the whole evolutionary project. But one is fixed earlier. And one is a possibility that comes later. Or to use different terminology we've used in the podcast, there's a certain ceiling the ego has. And it's important that we, we have to break through that. Or a different phrasing yet again is there, there's a certain adaptation we form that we might become quite adapted to and like and stick with. But then there's still the possibility of further adaptability. And adaptability is more creative and flexible and on the move, whereas an adaptation is more fixed and rigid and in place. And, and so power structures will tend to fix these things in place, and, and then the people in power don't want to give them up. But we need to give some of those up. We need to be adaptable rather than choose an existing adaptation that we've already got. We need... But in order for all those things to happen, yeah, we need to do work on the ego. Not in the sort of natural, undisciplined, untrained, habitual way in which we're naturally raised within a culture, but now in a more intentional, higher level, more conscious um, way, which, which I think is what we call spirituality. And all the world's traditions have spirituality that they have developed and evolved, and all of them have a commonality of working on and working against the individual ego to curb its desires and needs for the sake of the tribe. And beyond the tribe, the tribe often, especially small tribes, often had a recognition of nature's needs. And it's like, yeah, we don't want to up and move because it's a lot of work, but we need to because, you know, we've exhausted the, the resources in this area. And for the, for the sake of ourselves to survive, but also for the area to replenish, we need to up and move on. Well, another way I've heard uh, spiritual practices being talked about or these contemplative practices like meditation is quite simply adult development. Right? You, you've, you've become an adult, but there's still a long ways to go in terms of uh, managing your desires, living responsibly. And in many ways, we've characterized, well, in past episodes, we've characterized our economic system as very infantile. And we we're, we have our technologies. We're like, a, we're like a child driving a car that just finds itself driving a car. We're, we're still very young as a civilization. We don't know what we're doing. And so we need to 
teach ourselves. We need these, we've talked about mythologies, we've talked about spiritual practices, these different ways of maturing ourselves into a society that can behave responsibly uh, with the earth that it finds itself on. Yeah, and actually, I was just about to mention mythologies, Dawson, because uh, a few episodes ago, we actually spent quite some time on uh, exploring what mythologies are. And I think one of the things that we kind of uh, talked about was that how mythologies are not the objective realities. It is the realities that are egos at the level of both individual as well as a society that we construct. It's a version of reality for ourselves, and it varies from tribe to tribe. So in this case, when we're talking about kind of like going above and beyond the ego, breaking through the ceiling, are we actually talking about then a different type of mythology, perhaps a universal mythology? And I know we talked about that in, in contrast to the Axial Age, and I'm wondering if there, is, there are golden nuggets there in the Axial Age of universal mythologies that we can pick up on, which will help us with this project. I think so. I mean, I am fully convinced, um, along with, with others, um, that we need to create a whole new mythology adequate to an unprecedented world. We need an unprecedented mythology. Now, it does not mean it will abandon all of the old mythological stuff. In fact, it will keep, it will need to keep what is wise and deep and profound from that. But it will also need to shed what, what is immature or infantile from that. And, and then another piece in that is is that prior to the actual age, mythologies were ways of stabilizing consciousness in a story form. And and no, they weren't objective in a sort of a scientific sense of an objective description of a physical reality of nature out there. But they are a type of objectivity, a psychic objectivity, just like the ego. I wanted to add it's sort of psychic survival. Well, a mythology is is a psychic objectivity. Um that, that stories how our psyche experiences reality, which, which is a type of objectivity, but a very different sort of objectivity than, than the object of a natural science that can like look at something from outside. Because we, we are living our psyches from within, and, and we are our love and our care and our despair. Those are not objects outside us. So I, I think what the actual age comes to realize is that Large-scale civilization and that whole project, which is a natural evolutionary product that comes out of millennia of hunter-gatherer tribes, um, it comes to realize that, that, that there's a serious problem with the scale of power embodied in that form of civilization and therefore in the mythologies of those civilizations. It revolts against those and criticizes them. For the most part, not to get rid of mythology, but to come up with a mythology that is much more conscious of the self-destructive and infantile and immature and, and unseen elements of the older mythologies. Um, and, and what they, the actual age therefore offers, which I think is something we need to pick up today and build on in order to come up with an adequate mythology, is they say, we have found a way to stabilize consciousness, which is much more conscious and intentional than the telling of myths to everyone else. It is through consciously turning your mind in upon itself through training, and, and this is what Buddhist meditation does, it's what Christian and, and, con, and Jewish contemplation does, it's what the Greek philosophy did, it is what the Confucians um, trained themselves to do and the Taoists in China, um, Hindu sages did. What they all have in common is, is this capacity to stabilize a consciousness which is not centered on your own ego. So to tie it into your 
claim about adult development. It seems to me that a lot of, in conventional psychology, what adult development is, is the development of a healthy ego that's realistic and is able to function in society. What, what is left unspoken there is whether the mythology is really putting us in contact with real reality in a good way, and whether, in fact, society is doing good, healthy practices. What if, in fact, our society has become somewhat pathological or skewed, as I think a lot of ours has today, and, in fact, climate-threatening, right? Something's wrong with the version of reality we're being given. I mean, what if there's something skewed about the society itself in terms of like, well, it really affirms our individualism, but it doesn't affirm community. So it turns out to, to really be bad for our mental health, which in fact, I think is a lot of the modern problem. Well, if that's the case, well, well then we don't want just sort of a healthy ego in those terms. In fact, that is an actually an unhealthy ego. Uh, so what the actual age gives us are, are, are spiritual tools to work on recognizing and, and making conscious our own ego and how it is invested in these civilizational structures. I think it absolutely no coincidence that in the last 20 years, the, the modern West has discovered mindfulness as this ancient technique. And they discover that it's really good for mental health and, and, and it's really good for all sorts of things beyond mental health, right? Um, as well, it makes you more compassionate. It makes you better able to handle like negative emotions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so when you tie that together with mythology, the actual age is not saying let's get rid of our mythology, but they're saying let's mythologize, but with a lot more self-critical conscious awareness that in fact, a lot of our myths might in fact be constructs that we're creating that serve our needs and they might not be true. And, and that therefore we can evaluate and assess those in order to outgrow them. And I think that the actual age has a vision of kind of spiritual progress that they put forward, but that in world relig religions institutionalizing and domesticating that message and taking it out of the small community setting, uh, it loses that spiritual progress and instead it becomes fixed in a certain historical form that, that itself is negative. Yeah, well, I think that's really key. And, and yeah, like for, for the d adult development example, you're right, like we're going, these practices that we're sort of advocating, hopefully go far beyond what modern psychology would usually consider development. Because what modern psychology would usually consider development is let's make sure that we're well adapted to our social scenario. But maybe maybe this isn't a good social scenario to be adapted to, right? And, and it seems to me the best psychologists, and I would include someone like a Freud here, although there's problems with Freud, um, but it seems to me the best psychologists will go beyond sort of healthy ego development as the highest possible goal, and they will start to re and they start to recognize well. The psychology leads to a critique of the culture as well, and that many of our cultures and civilizations are in fact psychologically unhealthy. And yes, I think. To be simple about it, a conventional psychology sort of has as its ideal the development of the healthy ego for the adult. And then it leaves the adult free to do whatever he or she wants. Notice that's perfectly in fitting with the economics of individualism and freedom there, and then it ties into the whole mythology. I think to move beyond that, you now need to have a more spiritual perspective that says, now that we've reached a healthy ego, that is now the problem. It was the achievement that we needed when we're children. It was the achievement of our long-ago evolution. But now it becomes the problem in order for us to leave, like, just 
the beginnings of adult be, adult be, adulthood behind and become mature adults. And it's where we're at in terms of civilization. We need to leave that behind in order to become a mature civilization. And, and now we need to, to work against the ego and, and see, well, what it, it doesn't do away with consciousness, but it opens us on to a far more mysterious and inviting and rich consciousness than, than the consciousness we live with, with an individual ego at its center. And the claims of spiritual masters everywhere is that the breakthroughs of spiritual development is, is bliss and joy and humility and kindness and compassion and love and that you practice all of those things. And, and their claim is that you practice them better if you do not have a healthy ego at the center, but if in fact you're able to sort of transcend that ego and move beyond it. And it seems to me we need to start doing that at a collective scale with all of the cumulative effects that, and impacts that that would have as a key sort of psychological element in, in the fight against the crises of our time and that the world is in. Well, you guys, uh, Dawson and Chris, you, what you guys are saying, it makes a lot of sense and it sounds really good. Everything around us kind of makes me feel like that people don't want to give up their identities and egos. So what can we do with this knowledge and this uh, wisdom? Well, they don't want to give it up. And that is spirituality is really hard. And if all of the crises of our world don't realize, don't force us to realize that, yeah, we need to make a breakthrough at all kinds of levels, economically, socially, politically, personally, communally, but I would say also, of course, spiritually. And the spiritual life is a challenge, but, but the spirituality always comes with what? A certain community that practices these things and a mythology that articulates it. And so part of the challenge, like you, I think you put your finger on the crux of the matter psychologically, um, and all spiritual traditions of the world have sophisticated means of working on exactly that. What we need to do is figure out which aspects of those traditions we can retrieve and that apply to our crisis of today. For example, almost all mythologies have profound stories of transformation. And remember, we're in a global lockdown because of the coronavirus. It's pushing us to transform, and most of us don't want to. Right? Mythology would say, do not go back to business as usual. The caterpillar does not enter the cocoon in order to come out a bigger, stronger caterpillar. It's supposed to come out of the cocoon a butterfly, transformed into something different that's, that can flit and fly. Right? And the butterfly is a sign of hope. Right? What it means is, above all, and here's where the tough psychology of climate change really comes in, things like terror management theory, right? we are terrified of losing our identity. Right? And there's a whole school of psychology that looks at this. Many of the psychologists of climate change talk about radical hope or active hope, hope as a form of defense and a denial rather than something positive. We should like they all talk about we need, and this is what spiritual tra spiritual traditions talk about too. We need to face the devils and the demons and the dragons. We need to battle with them. But here, they're not something external to us. They are ourselves. They are our ego writ large, our desires writ large, our fears writ large. They are what we need to face and confront and overcome in order to open the possibilities for what comes after identity, what comes after those fears and terrors. And what comes after it is going to be, for sure, small communities, relationships to nature, and personal transformation. And I know those are all actual elements. 
I think those are still with us today. But what it, what will be new that's added is that we need to put all of those now into this global time of multiple mythologies that are clashing and multiple world crises that are converging. And after all of that will be the future we live.